welcome or welcome back. If you're new to this podcast, thank you for the effort that it may have taken you to get here. This old septuagenarian can appreciate the difficulties some may have navigating all things internet. Please know I'm not many steps ahead of you and quite likely several behind some of you. I only know that my opportunity to reflect on events and scenes and experiences over 60 years removed from my current time frame is providing a cathartic release for me, and that seems to be resonating with many. It appears likely that the Primrose Chronicles podcast will top 3,500 downloads by the end of November, a feat I never considered possible or likely when I launched this project basically just for my kids and grandkids seven months ago. So let me greet you as we begin. I'm Marty Young, a retired preacher who grew up in a very unique era, the 50s and 60s, in a very nondescript part of our nation, Indianapolis, Indiana. But I had the opportunity of experiencing my childhood and teen years rooted in a home that sat in a -a one-of-a-kind neighborhood. That would be Primrose Avenue, 44th to 46th Street. 25 chapters precede this one, 26 if you count the limited bonus release installment made available first to fans of TPC and generally dropped with little fanfare between looks at the Indiana State Fair back in August. As for this chapter of Chronicles, it is the second of two episodes combined to put a personal face on three fears that gripped the U.S. during those decades, even as television grew Hula hoops and coonskin caps raged, and the American dream was generally being sought and achieved. Last week, we looked in on how homes, neighborhoods, and schools were affected by the health crisis that was the polio epidemic. Don't miss episode 25, Shots, Shelters, and the Red Scare Part 1, and listen to the personal account of the epidemic that flamed fears in many families and the ultimate victory that was expressed when a vaccine became available. But the fear of contracting polio, especially by the youngest and the most vulnerable of the nation's population, was not the only matter that frightened the greatest generation that were raising their baby boomers. Episode 26 will cover the last two matters suggested in the title, The Shelters and the Red Scare. The fear of nuclear annihilation by the atomic or hydrogen bomb, and it coming at the hands of a communist regime that ruled the union of Soviet socialist republics and sought world domination by force, but also, in the case of America, by the infiltration of our government, military, news agencies, and entertainment industry. At least that was what was most loudly being proclaimed. To one, the answer was preparation and personal protection like fallout shelters and local non-military citizen groups. To the other, the answer seemed to be vigilance and exposing the threats to the American way of life within and without, calling them elements of the Red Scare. Combined, they were perhaps the only thing that more Americans feared than the epidemic. These two were emotionally linked in the minds of Hoosiers and beyond and will be intertwined in that telling today. You may know the historical facts of these times, even heard of a few of the players, Khrushchev, Eisenhower, Kennedy, McCarthy, and I too will speak of them, but only as they or their actions affected 4425, 91, or BRHS. I will admit, 
Much of what I share in their regard today is cradled in the context of study and research I only recently did in preparation for this tale. Those facts I glean, though, will only serve as a landscape for viewing how lives, especially in my neighborhood, would face the uncertainties and react to the hysteria of a post-World War, Cold War America. For fuller examination, I urge a simple Google search. That's all I did. If you do, though, you will get a wide range of treatments that may help you fill in the gaps that I know I will no doubt leave. Just remember, I was just a kid when it all happened, and now I'm old as I recount it. I mean, gaps are going to occur. So once again, here goes. As World War II ended, things seemed to be falling into place for the members of the returning military and their sweethearts as they settled into their places of a burgeoning suburban America. The creative juices of men and women alike that had been devoted to the war effort could now be turned to methods and means to make modern living easier. A growing television schedule as well as crazes and fads that were featured in magazines and commercials and sales catalogs flamed the fire to keep up with the Joneses. The golden age of capitalism was about to burst on the scene, and with it, the excitement of a time of peace and prosperity. What could go wrong? Well, that question was answered halfway around the world in Kazakhstan in 1949 by the USSR when they detonated their own first atomic nuclear device. To a world that was safely and benevolently protected by one nation, the good old US of A, and its superior technology that had brought the war effort against Japan to an early conclusion, there was suddenly a second world power. A power that rivaled and soon exceeded America in its own nuclear stockpile. Add to their nuclear successes, their thirst for world domination, and spread of their godless ideology of communism, suddenly there was enough fear and dread and anxiety to go around. And I know that's a simplistic overview of the events leading into the 50s, but hey, I was less than two years old. How much was I going to understand? As a preschooler, I took my cues for peace and uneasiness from my mom and dad. And they, along with their high school friends, now parents themselves, spoke of the possibility of a very real threat to the United States by the Russians. Not just a catastrophic military strike. I'll talk about our reaction to that over the next decade plus in a minute. No, earlier, and maybe more insidious in getting into the minds of Americans across the fruited plain, was what came to be known as the Red Scare. How do I know about it? Because my folks and Grandpa Grant talked about it. Sometimes in hushed tones at our kitchen tables, first on Capitol Avenue and later on Primrose, or in their reactions to first the impassioned charges against politicians, the military, and the world of entertainment and news made by Senator Joe McCarthy of Wisconsin. Those charges that communists had infiltrated the highest levels of government in the army, as well as occupying positions of influence in Hollywood and television, all to subvert the American values and turn citizens against their government, Christian faith, and their wholesome way of life. This matter took importance so much so that it took over the television schedule daily for a couple of months in 1954. For a kindergartner, it was boring. 
And it also meant that no Captain Kangaroo before I left for school. And no Winky Dink and Ding Dong School on Saturday mornings. But it seemed to adults that the Senate hearings of the ongoing investigations of that committee was riveting. And thus a primary topic of conversation at the end of the day of viewing. Its ongoing broadcast offered a daily source of nervousness and uncertainty about the actual state of things. And if folks hadn't gotten enough, there was the evening news to rehash it. Seemed like my folks and their friends were becoming experts in the whole idea of ideological infiltration. More than that, they were sensing a need to join the campaign to keep our homeland free of the Ruskies. They could leave the active military protection to the experts, but they shouldn't ignore the role that they could play in keeping their eyes on fishy neighbors and their ears open to overhearing clandestine activity plans. Did they talk funny? Were they attending meetings beyond normal church fare? Did they speak of any secret societies and try to recruit? Did they put newspapers with questionable editorial opinions out in their trash? Were there empty vodka bottles there? Just just be alert. Again, I was oblivious to most of those operations at the time, but as I got into high school, it was surprising what my parents admitted to. Behavior spurred on by Cold War hysteria and the rhetoric of one Senator Joe McCarthy. When the Senator's tactics were exposed by TV news anchorman Edward R. Murrow, even I trusted him when I sat long enough to listen to a news story. He smoked during his broadcast, just like my dad and other real men. He was obviously one to be believed. Well, he proved to be a formidable opponent to McCarthy, no doubt. Murrow would not be bullied by the senator's style, challenged his often absurd charges, and those interviews subsequently led to McCarthy being censored by Congress. Now, if that had been the end of it, early in 1954, families could have gone about their business of having babies and buying bigger homes and getting second cars and color TVs all in fine fashion. Red would have faded to pink. But then, pinkos were not to be trusted either. Instead, this scare continued to grow as the young family did and moved on to Primrose. It was there, beginning in second grade and forward, that the red scare of the early young era reached serious atomic weapon concerns for the entire nation. Beyond the rhetoric of McCarthy, the uncertainty of the motives of international powers led to a full expansion of a national government entity called the Civil Defense Administration. And it depended on local citizens in neighborhoods across the U.S. and that included Primrose Avenue. It was a civil defense job to prepare localities in the event of a nuclear attack and spring into action. That would take place through the efforts of local precinct officers. Again, I can only speak of Primrose and the activities of our neighbor Bob McMasters. He was already the local scoutmaster, so he looked official in any uniform. He was willing to outfit the family station wagon with things like a walkie-talkie, flashlights, flares, first aid materials, and even put a red and white Civil Defense logo on the wagon's two front doors. What identified his real work was when he was also issued a Geiger counter. 
a fairly new device to the average American's awareness, but he now actually had one. It could detect the level of radiation on surfaces and in the ground and indicate when it was safe to return to an area radioactively contaminated by the cloud produced by an enemy attack. This was serious business, and Bob was up to the task. In truth, Dad had himself invested in his own hand-built, of course, radiation detector, so he kind of became Bob's unofficial right-hand man. Now, don't think Andy and Barney, even if I have a hard time not. The McMaster's living room hosted regular information meetings for the people of Primrose. Cookies and coffee provided by wife Pat, and updates reported by Bob as shared from higher officials in the Civil Defense Administration. We kids usually played outside during those meetings, but if weather or darkness moved us indoors, we caught some of the proceedings. I remember as a fourth or fifth grader first hearing about the Connellrad system. It was alluded to regularly in the broadcasting of the radio stations I'd begun to listen religiously to, and even interrupted their broadcast weekly for. I didn't know what Connellrad meant, but reading about it in Wikipedia this week, it was actually kind of a cool effort to thwart an enemy air attack but I'll leave it to you to investigate it if you really care. Civil Defense Officer Bob would also regularly review what we should do when we saw the flash. As I recall, it was always when, never if, and it referred to the terrifying possibility, even likelihood, of an atomic bomb. We should shield our eyes, drop to the floor and turn our bodies to the wall, cover our neck and heads, and remain in that curled-up position until help came. Those instructions were repeated and practiced in homes, schoolrooms, and even at public events prior to their beginning. The variations came dependent upon location and the amount of warning time given. Sirens atop tall telephone poles sounded as tests weekly, just like the Radio Connellrad system. And between those two efforts, it was hoped that families and individuals could seek safety and shelter prior to the destructive force of the bomb's blast. Beginning in the mid-50s, the fear of nuclear annihilation even birthed its own industry. Fallout shelters became the logical consideration of things got more and more iffy between governments and their leaders. There was a variety of models, some which could be homemade and ran about $150 to make, were on the low end, while those built by contractors went for over $1,000. Now, I was not aware of any structures in our immediate neighborhood, but as I got into high school with more affluent friends, I was introduced to some above ground and made of concrete, others half above, like a bunker with a cave-like opening, still others created by digging beyond the wall of a family home basement through a reinforced tunnel to a small room beneath the backyard with a filtered air pipe extending out of the earth. I remember a store catering to those fears that actually sold fallout shelters. It was over at 45th and Keystone. They had samples of all the above-ground models, a tabletop layout of a below-ground structure, and, of course, all that would be needed to fully stock it for a family of three or four. 
that Keystone organization that had the place at 45th actually occupied a section of one of the manufacturer's buildings at the fairgrounds to display their offerings for the state fair's two-week stint, and they did that for a few years. I was also aware in the early 60s, kind of the high point of shelter sales, that the structures were also sold by a store up in Broad Ripple that also sold in-ground swimming pools. I don't know. That was just kind of a funny image to me. On Primrose, we did what we could. We just outfitted our basements, hermetically sealed the basement door, filled cabinets with non-perishable staples, and of course had transistor radios with batteries and flashlights with the same, and there it helped to have a dad who worked for the gas company. Dad also, of course, had his Geiger counter. Now, I remember candles and comics and magazines and books on shelves. And, of course, there were blankets, rolled-up mattresses and the like. And I'm sure there were crude facilities to accommodate necessary personal hygiene. But Mom was kind of a personal kind of person who figured that there would be a time to explain how we would handle all those things. And it just didn't have to be before the actual occurrence. In the meantime... Dad had bartered for a second TV, which he repaired and placed in the basement until it became necessary to occupy it full-time as a shelter. It would serve no purpose in case of the big one, but until then it helped eliminate some of the fights over TV programming upstairs. Related to the nuclear warning, Dad had installed hanging aluminum squares over each of the egress windows that normally let light into the basement but could be quickly hooked up and over the openings to keep out harmful radiation. I mean, who needed underground bunkers and the like? We couldn't be safer. The other place that occupied most of our waking hours as kids was school. And while I can only speak of the drills and safety procedures of 91, I know the Civil Defense Administration produced materials for all schools to train and prepare teachers, and other school personnel in the event nuclear attack should come during the school day with dozens of children in their care. Central to those instructions were the Civil Defense black and white 16mm films every class was shown regularly down in the film room in the school basement. It was outside the band room, the shop, the home ec rooms on one side, and the boiler room, also known as the teacher's smoke room, on the other. The films were preceded by a brief musical cartoon featuring the character Bert the Turtle, who sang the Civil Defense theme song for responding to a nuclear attack, Duck and Cover. After the bouncy little ditty to suggest that the topic they spoke of was not the most ominous threat to civilization ever, a movie containing different scenarios, offering instructions on how to protect oneself when the atomic bomb exploded near them, the basic civil defense instructions that had been shared by civil defense precinct officers in our neighborhood now came with full demonstration. The film ended. Class members were asked if they had questions, and then our teacher, and or Mrs. Shoemaker, Mr. Mitten, if available, would advise us that we would be having regular, unannounced drills going forward, and we should be aware what we should do based on where we were. Even today... Most of us remember, if we were in our classrooms, we should get under our desks, cover our heads and necks, and turn away from the windows. 
Same was true if in the cafeteria or in the basement hall where the sack lunch kids ate. If in a general hallway, we should put ourselves face first against the wall, curling into a ball, again covering our head and neck. If we had a book, that should be used as protection. Out at recess on the playground was probably the most dicey. If we could reach an outside wall, we assumed the same position as if we were in a hallway. But if in the middle of the playground, in an area deemed too distant to reach the wall, we just attempted the turtle maneuver a la Bert and hoped for the best. These were practiced whenever we heard a specific bell pattern and frequently enough to assure school authorities that their campus was safe because it was when, not if. As if those were not enough to put the terror in our young, impressionable minds, all the forms of media seem to have created a single genre. Even with the departure of McCarthy and before the Berlin Wall and the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was still an apprehensive uncertainty of whether we were truly safe as the decade advanced. Authors, American and international, began to consider in their writings worlds that might come about if events continued to unfold without restraint. I remember for a time Mom reading a weekly installment of a science fiction novella from the pages of Saturday Evening Post one day after supper once a week. She was a good reader, and Dad enjoyed listening until or unless he dropped off to sleep. But the one that kept him awake was The Body Snatchers by Jack Finney. A couple of years later, it was made into a movie called The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and I didn't see it until part of a Saturday kitty matinee at the Uptown Theater, 42nd and College, and that cost me a quarter. But there were cartoons and hundreds of other unruly kids whose folks had dropped them off to give them a break at home. But even in that atmosphere, it scared the tar out of most of us. It spoke of a town being taken over by aliens and how it was subtly changed. And the folks were saying that what was happening with the Russian takeover in the various parts of society was exactly the same. And so we should start keeping an eye on those fishy people. And it sounded like a good plan to maintain our democracy. I also watched that movie several times on Saturday nights on a TV in our basement with the lights out and blankets pulled up over my nose. And as I worked on this episode, this work came back to me. I haven't watched it in years, but sure enough, YouTube had that freaky closing soliloquy by the main character, Miles Bennell, who was trying to prophetically warn folks of the impending takeover, and he said it directly into the camera. Maybe you can recall it, if I can do it justice at all. Look, you fools, you're in danger. Can't you see? They're after you. They're after all of us. Our wives, our children, everyone. They're here already, and you're next. I also dove deep into Neville Schutt's book, On the Beach. It had been a selection from the scholastic book section of our weekly reader. So, how bad could it be? Well, it scared the bejeebers out of me. The story was about the only survivors of a nuclear holocaust in the entire world, basically a small part of the citizenry of Melbourne, Australia, and then the crew of a submarine that had been submerged on mission when the war broke out. 
It was only going to be a matter of time before the radiation cloud reached Melbourne, and the question was who to save, and how, and for how long. Then there were the television shows dealing with the what-if that were prompted by the uncertainty of the times brought on by the certainty of the end of the world as we knew it. One of the fans of TPC reminded me this week of that iconic Twilight Zone of the late 1950s. And, of course, YouTube let me watch it as well this week. There was no occult, no supernatural, just families of a neighborhood, one of which had built a fallout shelter in their basement. They were enjoying a birthday celebration when a Conrad broadcast announced that an invading aircraft carrying nuclear bombs were headed for their city and folks were urged to take shelter. The family with the fallout shelter only had room and provisions for their family of four. The other families would not be able to join them. And when the door closed with them on the outside and the family inside, those not permitted in became a mob and they broke down the door and threatened the inhabitants therein with bodily harm if they weren't allowed to stay. At that point, another Conrad announcement came on to say that it was just wayward satellites. There was no threat. And the neighbors were forced to apologize and all found it difficult, if not impossible, to restore those previous relationships. I share Rod Serling's closing comments to suggest the paranoia that was a part of this otherwise idyllic time that I've spoken of so much in the last two dozen episodes. Consider his words. No moral, no message, no prophetic track, just a simple statement of fact. For civilization to survive, the human race had to be civilized. Tonight's very small exercise in logic from The Twilight Zone. I know this has been a strange couple of weeks on Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue, I guess it's brought some balance to a previously overly rosy look back, as some have charged. But I'm not giving up on that look either. In fact, I'm returning to it next week as we look at... uh, Wait, I'm still deciding, so I promise, though, it won't be as dark. All I can promise is that I will take you back once again to my little corner of that world and let you, and me too, be reminded of its overall charm. I certainly wouldn't trade it for any other block, or any other time for that matter. Let me know if you'd like to offer directions or topics. I only hope to serve you, my listeners, and I hope you'll be back next week. Blessings. Blessings.